instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and for all they can mean to us. And we pray that as we encounter them, however familiar they may be, uh, your Holy Spirit will be uh, leading us and shaping us and speaking to us, and that these words would take root in who we are as your church here. Uh, In his name, amen. Um, I've already mentioned to somebody that as house group leaders, I'll get a set of notes out for these as soon as I can, probably tomorrow morning. Um, I know that we've got prayer meeting tomorrow, but I want you to be ahead of these and have something to look to. Um, Anyway, let's press on. Uh, There's an apocryphal story about a US military um, aircraft testing unit. Um, And the way they test engines in there uh, was by throwing large birds into an engine while it was running. So it's on the engines on the ground, and they throw a bird in. And if you've seen the film Sully, uh, you'll know that bird strikes present quite a risk to aircraft in flight. So it's important uh, that the engine can withstand an impact and keep functioning. So they use turkeys, because they're quite big and make quite a big impact. And they're a good measure of what could happen. Anyway, there's a story uh, about uh, a poor engineer that after several days of extensive testing and destroying several engines, was asked to make sure that the turkeys were defrosted. You can't, you can't just throw something hard into something like that and hope that it would, be, uh, it, would, it would sustain it. And I suppose this evening I want to look at one of the, those things that God promises, that Isaiah saw, that Jesus ratified, that we are beneficiaries of, Um, as we see what God wants to come and do. So there'll be more detail in home group notes, but I want to look at this passage in a couple of ways. Um, First thing I want to look at then is it's really important that Isaiah frames several things um, uh, within his uh, prophetic book. He talks about a king uh, who we've been sort of examining in the run-up to Christmas, and we'll uh, be examining in a bit more depth after Christmas. And in in the sort of Coming into Lent and and Easter, we might be thinking about the suffering servant. Uh, And again, that's Isaiah's picture of this individual who's going to come and and redeem the people, that he's going to do things on their behalf that they can't do for themselves. Uh, And in Isaiah 61, we have this third picture uh, of what Isaiah sees, this figure, this hero figure coming to the aid of their people, and it's, the, it's that of the anointed one. So we have the king, we have the servant, and the anointed one, and we see all of those aspects uh, to Jesus' personality. Uh, it's a short reading, so I'd encourage you to have uh, it open in front of you on your laps, and I just want to uh, look at a couple of things. And the first thing is that in verse 1, we read two little things. We read uh, about the mission of the anointed one, and who is coming to save, that is the plight of humankind, our situation. Um, the anointed one is, is a recipient, is, receives God's Holy Spirit. 
The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. So that means that his work will be divinely guided. That means that his work will be led by God. That means that his decisions and his suggestions and his questions will have good in them. They will have your good, our good, the people's good within them, that they are to lead us. However awkward or difficult they might feel, they are for our good, and that's important. And it's important also that this anointed one who we know to be Christ is going to be led by God. He's not going to be afraid of what men do, or he's not going to sort of worry about what they might think and then come up with a compromise. He's going to lead, uh, as we follow, as he is led by God. This anointed one is led by God. An anointing means that he's been chosen and blessed for that role. That it's, a, it's an appointment. We read, of course, in the Old Testament, David was anointed king. This oil uh, was poured over him. It was a representation of God's blessing over this person. So the anointed one is chosen and blessed and led uh, by God. And if you flicked forward to Luke chapter 4, you would see Jesus talking about this in quite clear terms, wouldn't you? This is the so-called Nazareth Manifesto. We've had enough of manifestos, uh, but Luke 4 is a good one. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says in Luke chapter 4, 18, because he has anointed me. Sorry, which one of Should I have one of the microphones off? Thanks. Um, so we, we read that Jesus says that the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is on him because he has anointed me. So in this, in this sort of wonderful sort of picture that Jesus is recalling, he's also intimating a personal relationship as well. There's a sense of, I know this one. I know the one who has anointed me. So there's a great deal of um, strength there. And chapter 4 of Luke uh, also reminds us that Jesus came out of the desert. If you looked at verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit's lead was, was over Jesus Christ from the beginning of his ministry. And this is how he has sees himself, that Isaiah foresees this anointed one hundreds of years before, and Jesus is declaring, I am that one. In fact, later on in Luke chapter 4, he says, today these words are fulfilled in your presence. You will see, you have seen the outworking of God's plans for you. And so there's a sense in which we see God's, it's this person who's going to come and he's going to look a lot like some of the people of, of Israel's past, of their history. We also notice, if you, were just, if you were just flicking through the Luke reading and the Isaiah reading, you'll see that Jesus omits the stuff, uh, the, the reference to the day of vengeance. That he's there to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And I often think that's quite a temptation, isn't it? It's nice, it's comforting sometimes, just to be able to say, well, God's going to get them. 
and forget that we are in the year of the Lord's favour too. And that he is extending his grace and his love that we might find forgiveness and life through him. And that's important because even in Isaiah's time, the people to whom this anointed one would come are in a pretty bad state. He sees them as broken-hearted, captive, and in darkness. Those aren't great pictures, are they? And part of those pictures, some of those words, some of those descriptions, uh, allude to the people in exile, especially those phrases in, ca- in captivity and in darkness. But underlying those ideas, underlying that situation, is the history of their sin and their rebellion against God. That actually, this darkness and this, um, this captivity, well, they're the outworkings of their disobedience to God. He wanted to look after them, but they chose their own way. And now others have come in and taken them from him, and they're now captive and in darkness because of sin. And their captivity is quite an interesting uh, phrase because we'll see freedom, if part, uh, part one, proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. There's two things going on there. The release from darkness, the second part, is very much about being in, you know, put in a camp or put in a prison. But the first part of it, freedom for the captives, is very much about being under, else, under somebody else's boot, under somebody else's cosh, under somebody else's rule. So there's two things going on there. There's a sense of being imprisoned, but there's also the sense of being in thrall to somebody. Other people who hold power over them. And the anointed one has come to announce release in all of these, in, in all of these ways and more. And in fact, one of the interesting little phrases there is to, if you looked at, um, to release from darkness for the prisoners. The, the verb in the Hebrew is kind of doubled. It's duplicated. So it's not like, um, it, it's so that they can release, they'll be able to see with wide eyes. So they're not just going to be able to see because it's not dark anymore, but they're going to be see everything because they've got wide eyes. There's this double sort of release uh, going on. It's a sense of them being completely released, completely free. And we see plenty of Jesus' healing and uh, ministry uh, where he, re- he did heal the blind and, and healed the deaf and cured the lame. And, and these are signs of his authority, but they're also symbolic reminders of his willingness to forgive people and of their sin and bring them into the life that he wants them to have. Uh, there's a story, isn't there, of a healing of a blind young man in John 5, John 6, and it's very much, it's, 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 a much, it's as much about the young man's healing and about God's willingness to bring people in despite the blindness of the Pharisees who were there as well. The religious groups around were blind too. They were captive. They were under somebody else's influence. They weren't living the life that God had called them to have as well, which is really important. So from Isaiah's perspective, verse 1 was very much about 
this, this anointed one who's going to come and sort human issues as he saw it. Verses 2 and 3, then, are even richer and deeper. And these should be pinned up on your fridge or your cookie jar or whatever you go to most often. Uh, because they talk about God's perspective and how much richer and deeper he, they are. God is aware, of course, of his people's suffering. He, he hears their cries. He, he is sympathetic to them. He, is, he empathizes with them. He is distressed when they are distressed. But this God is also uh, able. He's sovereign. He can do what he wants. And so his capacity to help is, is perhaps deeper and richer than we might anticipate. So we've got this lovely verse 1 talking about how the situation as man saw it. Then 2 and 3, actually the deep cleansing love of God. We should notice uh, two uh, movements. These are such beautiful verses, aren't they? Uh, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Those are wonderful words, aren't they, about God's ability to deal with us, to change things. And I think those are really wonderful words. Anybody who's, who's struggling should, should hear these words. And there's a lovely downward movement to begin with, isn't there? We have a crown and then oil, which would have been on the head, and then a garment, which would have covered the body. And it's like God's blessing is pouring. Remember we talked about earlier on, we just talked about that anointing coming down. It's the work of heaven down onto us. And I think we sometimes have to acknowledge that. You know, we need to think clearly and accept and acknowledge what's going, what God wants to do with us before we receive the whole thing somehow. Sometimes we can be resistant to that, but God wants, his desire is to anoint and bless us from heaven all the way down. And then there's this inward movement as well, which is quite powerful, I find. I was quite struck by this, the way in which the ashes, which are the outward signs of grief, outward sign of grief of ashes, and then the mourning, which is the grief in the heart. You know, how you're thinking about something, how you're dealing with something. And then there's the despair. You see, it's a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I wonder how many of us have looked at, at forgiveness, the forgiveness and love of God at this sort of depth. In Mark 4, I think it might be Mark 6, I'm scrabbling a bit, Jesus talks about the things that come out of our hearts and how they get, and how they, they, they just need to be dealt with. They're in our being. And I think it's important to acknowledge that they're in there. They don't just randomly appear from us. They're in here to start with. We, in our room, first parish, we had some lovely friends. Um, and I, won't, I don't like to name names. Um, so, basically, one of them, one of them, a mum of a couple of small children, gave a testimony at church one day about how she had lost her temper at a car while she was walking the children to school, at a car that had come round the corner really fast, and she'd had to hurry the kids to the curb, and you know, she'd really let go, apparently, at this car, and really let fly. And I think perhaps a lot of us probably would, but she was still angry about it days later. 
She was still angry about it days later. And in her time, in her quiet time, she said that she had asked God, what's going on? Why am I still so angry about this? And God was gracious enough to answer to her, well, you've never forgiven me for taking your father. And she, she spent this time in her testimony just laying out how actually acknowledging that and then putting it before God and saying, yeah, you're right. I was angry with you about that. I was really cross about that. You should have done something and you didn't. And it's that sense in which we can deal with the surface stuff, but God wants to go deeper. That's why I think these words are lovely about moving from ashes to mourning to, to the spirit. That God's healing goes deeper uh, because he wants to transform us and often more than we may understand or, or may even be willing. Um, you'll know that I read Jordan Peterson's uh, 12 Rules for Life last year, uh, which is a cracking book, and I do commend it to anybody, really, just for, just for oh my gosh, he's a really good, he's a good thinker. But one of his rules for life was take care of yourself. To take as much care of yourself as, and, and have people around you that would. And what he observed was that, and I'm going to be careful because there are doctors in the room, but people often don't take their GP's advice. But if they go to the vet for their pet, they will stick quite rigidly to the vet's advice. Now, I don't know if this was a source of contention in medical school when you were applying all those years ago. Shall I, shall I go into a profession where people will listen to me or one where they'll just chance it? But Peterson observes that people are more likely to follow a vet's instructions than a doctor's. And the reason is because they see their pet as being helpless and unable to help themselves. And his view is, actually, maybe you should look at yourself as being unable to help yourself and actually needing the advice that you get. And I think that's a really healthy thing. And I think sometimes Christians are quite happy to say, you know what, I can cope. I can do all this, or that's fine, or God's dealt with it, or it's uh, the phrase that really winds me up, I've left it at the foot of the cross. Yeah, but it was caught to your trouser leg and it followed you all the way. And, and, and I tripped over it twice, you know. Is somebody who has a serious point there, though, isn't there? What, what's on offer here, what Isaiah sees, is somebody who can get to the root of it, not just the symptom. And he wants to do it. And Jesus is empowered to do it. When he's forgiving people their sins, he's changing their lives, isn't he? He's turning them around because the implication is, I am loved, I am free, I am new. I've been cleansed. And Jesus opens that up. Because God's grace, I think, goes deeper than we imagine. There's a lovely, uh, I, I, one of the most important books which I've ever picked up and only ever got halfway through is Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. It's, it's hard work, but it's really worth it. And in it, he talks about this idea that evangelical Christians, which is us, I think, um, have, he's coined this phrase for us, uh, the gospel of sin management. That it, and it's very, very tersely put, but effectively he says it's almost as though the church is only interested in Jesus for his saving blood and nothing else. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. And we focus so much on maybe dealing with the outworking of our hearts and the sin that's in there, rather than actually changing our heart. 
And we get into this cycle of God deal with this, God deal with this, God deal with this. Well, he will because he's quite gracious. But what he really wants to do is get into here and say, can you stop doing that? Would you mind? You know, you don't have to get, you don't have to be trapped in those cycles. And it's quite, it's quite an amazing comment for somebody to write, given how keen we are, I suppose, to get inside Paul's head. All of his letters keep telling us about this new life in Christ. And I'm pretty sure that nobody here was as bad as Paul in his heyday before he was converted. I'm pretty sure. Just looking around the room carefully. Um, but we can, you know, but we can somehow we manage to skip over some of his ideas. You know, he quite right plainly writes about putting death to the, putting the old life to death. He talks about putting on Christ. He talks about recognizing the sin in ourselves and putting it to death by the Spirit. He encourages us to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And so he's alluding to and he's aware of the prayers that Jesus said at the end of John that we would be one with the Father as he was one with the Father. That there would be nothing between us. That he would live in us and shape us and help us rather than us constantly having to pick us up. And I think the reason for this is important is that Isaiah sees a group of people called Oaks of Righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. It's not some kind of cooperative. It's all God's work. It's God's work to make all these changes. And it's important to allow that to happen. Oaks of Righteousness. I quite like to be called that, but I know I can't earn it myself. A display of his splendor. Something that would cause people to say, wow, look at that. I didn't realize that life could be like that. Uh, My daughter bought me a book uh, for Christmas on, uh, would you believe, big cats in Britain? The ones that have escaped. And what's fascinating, and it's quite an interesting book actually, but one of the things that's really, that comes through time and time again is how readily people can recognize a big cat. It looks out of place. It's not the norm that they would expect to see. And isn't the display of God's splendor something beyond the norm? Something a bit better? Something a bit surprising? Something that would be uh, a bit more, um, would, would cause people to say, you know what, I didn't expect that. I want to talk about that. I want, I want to be able to share that. I want to be... Um, able to say that was that was exciting i met some christians today and i never felt so enthusiastic i never felt so welcome i never felt so loved i never felt listened to in that way it was like they were listening to who i really was well those are things that i think are the work of god those are the things that are he's able to do through us he's able to do with us and in essence it's a divine exchange What's happening here is that God is exchanging our rubbish for his grace and his heavenly qualities. He's changing, he's exchanging the stuff that we come to the table with and go, well, that's it. And saying, well, that's, I can work with that. That's what's, impa- that's what's important because it's his, um, his, his ability to change our messiness that gives him glory. That, that, that makes God authentic and real. 
that enables people to see that there is opportunity to change. There is opportunity. There is a life out there that's more than that's more than just feeling bad about being a Christian. And what I would love for St. John's, for all of us, is that we grasp hold of this and allow that life to shape us. Allow that power to work in us. I'm not saying it's not happening, but let's let it live. Let's let it flow. Let's share it. Let's allow God's grace to shape the things we say, how we listen to people, how we act, the things we do. And the reason, part of the reason that we should be doing this is that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask for it every time, don't we? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the things of heaven be exchanged for the things in me that are of earth. And may we see people drawn to God because of they've seen his splendor. They're aware of his glory. They're aware of his love and his grace because of what they've seen in us. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Wouldn't that be a planting of the Lord? Shall we pray?